Welcome to my world, where my dad thinks of nothing but bluegrass, bluegrass, and bluegrass. Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks, howdy and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. The podcast for people who play bluegrass. And as I say in the little intro, and anybody who might want to. Today in this episode, it's going to be another one of those interviews. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Before we get to that, I I want to uh, just tell you that when I started the podcast, I thought the best way I can do this is to go ahead and record in advance a series, make sure that I've got a bunch of them lined up before I launch. So I recorded the first 10 episodes over a period of a couple of weeks before I initially launched the first two i i put out episode one and two on the same day and i remember you know when i nervously hit publish i remember going in and looking at the uh looking at the site and looking at the download counts and telling my wife later that evening i said look honey 10 people have already downloaded my podcast and i was so excited and it's it's amazing because Probably today, as I record this, the download count is going to top the 10,000 download mark. And to me, that's pretty amazing. When I think, as I said in the early episodes, this is a niche within a niche. It's really pretty amazing. So uh, 10,000 downloads and counting, and I believe this is episode 40. I joked around in the early episodes that I would do 500 and uh, that remains to be seen, but hey, I'm still clicking along, and it won't be that long until it's been going for a full, solid year of weekly episodes. That's pretty amazing. I, I sometimes wonder, why didn't I charge 99 cents per episode? Hey, I could pay my property taxes this year. Well, of course, I probably wouldn't have had quite as many downloads if I was charging 99 cents. But anyway, I mention all of this mostly to thank you because it's you that have pushed this up already to the 10,000 downloads mark. And I, I just want to say thanks for all of those of you who have told your friends, you know, those, those people that those flesh and blood friends that you have, your fellow bluegrass pickers. And of course, those friends on your Facebook page, you know, those people on your list of friends that you can't remember who that person is. <laughs> I appreciate you telling those folks, too, and, of course, anybody who has shared or posted links on the various uh, internet forums and social media and all that, that's how this word is getting around, and I really do appreciate that. And, of course, I also especially appreciate those of you who have become official Grass Talk Radio supporters, and details of that are, of course, on the page grasstalkradio.com and of course any of you who may have purchased uh, some of my video instructional materials or ebooks and that sort of thing when you do that i don't really know you know 
why you did it. As I've joked around in the past, if if you want to support the show, you could buy a banjo video or something, even though you might not play the banjo. But I don't specifically know. Uh, if you do the Grass Talk Radio Supporter Pack, then that's a pretty big hint to me. Even I can figure out that hint. But anyway, just a big general thank you to everyone. And uh, let's press on to 20,000 downloads. Anyway, let's get into this episode. Um, I'm bringing back the interview format. You know, I told you I had some technical difficulties recently with Skype. So that kind of shut down some planned interviews. Well, I got this one done because uh, my old buddy, Jeff Howald, that's G-E-O-F-F-H-O-H-W-A-L-D. Old Jeff Howald, who I have known, I guess I really got to know him probably around 83 or 84 and uh, bumped into him a lot around the Atlanta bluegrass scene until I left the big city of Atlanta back about 2011 and moved down here to this little country peanut farming area down here in Americas. And so I haven't seen Jeff as regularly as I used to. And uh, he's a really interesting character. Uh, that's one way to, to describe him uh, in the bluegrass world. And he's been around for a very, very long time. And I thought it would be fun to sit him down at the kitchen table, turn on the recorder. That's actually Jeff calling me right now. Uh, I Hang on one second. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Uh, did you get my text about asking for the tune for the end of did you get my message about asking for that tune we're gonna put at the end of the podcast? Uh, I, so what was your <laughs> I, I didn't listen to a message or anything. I was Okay. Well, that, what was the question? Let me give it to you. Um I have been looking around for that C D with the pure pleasure on it and I cannot find it. So if you could uh, rip an MP3 of that tune and email it to me or stick it in Dropbox or something, shoot me that down there. I'm going to try to get this thing edited today. I'm right now, okay. right now at the moment recording the intro and outro, but I just can't find the tune. Oh, okay, so what I'll do, I'm not going to be anywhere where <laughs> I have it for about, let's see, what is it, Probably not till about one o'clock. That'll be so good. That'll be fine. I'll, I'll email you a uh, a file of it. That pure pleasure. That just, just the one song. Yep, that's all I need, and then I can right. wrap this thing up. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, oh. I thought about that, but uh, I'll uh, yeah when I get to work, I'll send it to you. Very good. I'll be watching my right. email. I'll talk to you soon, Jeff. Okay. See you, man. So now let's get into this episode. Uh, an old buddy of mine, Jeff Howald, stopped by, and I asked him to sit down and talk a little bit about his backstory. Jeff is pretty well known for as being the author of probably one of the top-selling banjo, beginning banjo books of all time called The Banjo Primer. And when I started teaching, I used to actually use that book because the music store that I was teaching out of, they sold the book. So it was an easy way to put a book in, you know, in a person's hand. And I would teach out of that. Later on, I ended up 
uh, creating my own beginning method just because I prefer to do things a little bit different than Jeff. But my God, Jeff has taught through that book and the, the, the videos and stuff, a lot of people to play the banjo. So let's uh, just get right into it. Here we go with the interview with Jeff Howell. I am sitting in my kitchen, the place where I do many of these interviews with the amazing Jeff Howald, an old friend of mine who I've, I've been uh, bumping into and knocking around with since really the early 80s. And he's a banjo guy. I call him the banjo god, jokingly, although I think there is some truth to that. I want to start this little interview with Jeff by reading you something from Banjo Newsletter, May 1982. And I'm, I'm back here in the classifieds. It says here, dealers, banjo teachers, festival merchants, exciting banjo instruction books with cassette tapes are available through Banjo Academy Publications. Right for information on these five fast-selling banjo instruction books, Banjo Academy, blah, 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 Atlanta, Georgia, 30341. That's your ad, right, Jeff O'Wall? That is, I was the Banjo Academy. <laughs> Tell me about Banjo Academy real quick, and then we're going to get back, we're going to back up. I called to place the Yellow Page ad, and I said, I want Banjo Instruction as the title. And they said, you can't have that. It has to be something. So I thought, Banjo Academy. And that's how Banjo Academy came to be. And Banjo Academy essentially ended when the uh, building department realized I was teaching out of my house without a permit. So they sent me a letter, <laughs> told me to see, cease and desist. But fortunately, I had moved, so I just started the whole thing again. Let me mention and uh, that Jeff is one of the pioneers of banjo instructional material. And later in... In later years, that expanded to many other instruments. If you walked into some little podunk music store out in Flagstaff, Arizona, and there would be a rack in there, and you'll see something like the um, uh, the keyboard primer. And that book and DVD might have come out of the mind of Jeff Howald. So that's who we're sitting here with. And I want to remind everybody... Go to the show notes page. There's going to be links to some of the things we're talking about. Just go to grasstalkradio.com, and you know the routine. Go down to this episode, click on that, and you will see the various links for the things we're talking about so you don't have to take notes or anything during this. Uh, Jeff, before we get into all this um, instructional material, let's go back to your early days. Back when you were in diapers, uh, tell us, when you first got interested in bluegrass and banjo and you were living, you were born in Ohio, right? I was actually born in Boston, Massachusetts. No kidding. And my, uh, how'd you dad, end up in Ohio? When my dad, when I was six, my dad moved to Wilmington, Ohio to attend college and then moved to Columbus to attend Ohio state. And when I was 13 or 14, the neighbor uh, kid had a tenor banjo, so the family's oh banjo, that's cool, you know. So the this uh, kid across the street, his name was Harvey Scodell, decided to take some finger picking guitar. So Roger Ratton was the teacher, and Roger would come to your house. 
Well, Roger only knew two tunes. <laughs> so, hey, let me, I can attest, you, you can teach a lot of people and only know two tunes. As I, my theory is as long as you know more than the student, you've you got a business there. That, that's true. I, I never thought of it that way. So Roger, so I thought, hey, that's cool. So I'll learn two tunes. And I learned uh, railroad bill and freight train finger picked, picking. Well, now I was, had, I was done with everything he knew about guitar. Well, he knew either one or two banjo tunes. So I learned those, and we went down to a pawn shop, bought a K-Banjo for $17. And he showed me uh, Cripple Creek, and then I learned Foggy Mountain Breakdown out of the Pete Seeger book. Right. Roger had learned a couple uh, tunes from a guy named Robbie Robinson, who is known among the older bluegrass uh, players. He was pretty much an exact Scruggs-style player in 1963. So I went... And started taking lessons from Robbie, and Robbie taught me about 20 Scruggs tunes, pretty much note to note. Was, was he teaching it by just showing it to you and you memorizing it, or were you, did he have anything written? Because that was way before the Earl Scruggs book. Well, it was, it was kind of weird, because Robbie lived on a, the other side of town, the other side of the track, so to speak, and, and so... I would drive over there with my dad, and you'd be in this living room, and there'd be six or seven guys in chairs sitting around, <laughs> and Robbie would teach one of them, and then that guy would go sit, return to his chair, and the next guy would. So, of course, I walked in there, and I had never heard Foggy Mountain Breakdown, even though I had learned it from the Pete Seeger book, and th- that arrangement's pretty much note for note. So I started playing it with no spaces in it. So it's perfectly accurate, but totally out of time. And Robbie thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. So my first lesson, I learned the break to Fireball Mail, the first break totally from Foggy Mountain Banjo. Now, I don't know how I did this. I had 30 minutes, and I still don't know how I did My brain must have been, I must have had a photographic memory or a tape recorder ear or something. You were young. Pardon? You were young. I was young. That, that was the deal. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of other clutter in there. I see this in my my own son. The things he can pick up very quickly that uh, you get your head full of stuff. It takes a while. So long story short, I, I learned it. I walk across the porch, get in the back of my dad's car, and head home. No one else that ever took from him ever learned anything. Because they would take their lesson and then they'd go sit and talk about various things. So that's that's how I got started. And um, I learned about 20 songs and then Robbie moved out of town. And then I started taking lessons from a fellow named John Hickman. I've heard of John. Why don't you tell people who John Hickman is? I, I, I first learned of John Hickman from seeing him in some other banjo books. Uh, probably the melodic banjo book by... Tony Trishka, I think, had a little feature on him, but I remember him playing with Byron Berline and stuff like that. But tell me yeah, what John, you know. John um, lived in Columbus, Ohio, and then uh, in around 1969 or 70, he actually moved to California and did get hooked up with uh, Byron Berline and Dan Crary right. and a group called Sundance and was very 
known on the West Coast and had following within the United States, certain areas. And they also toured Europe and stuff. But he was uh, a very precise, powerful banjo player. How did, uh, well, while we're still in Ohio, while you're still in Ohio, were you seeing any bluegrass being played? I mean, did you see Bill Monroe, Jimmy Martin, Osborne Brothers? I mean, what was going on around Ohio at that time? What years would this have been? What, what, what are we? What? I started playing in 63, and I actually started playing when I was in college in the local nightclubs, and that would have started in about 65. And there was a place called the Astro Inn and a place called the Parmar. And every major person that you have ever thought of would come to the Parmar, which was a bar, probably a 3,000-square-foot bar. And they had a stage with a railing. So you could sit within two feet of the musicians. And so we have Bill Monroe coming through there, the original country gentleman. And, of course, the country gentlemen split up into the seldom seen Dole Lawson and Quicksilver. But, in fact, Dole wasn't even part of the original country gentlemen. So it was John Duffy, Charlie Waller, and Eddie Adcock. Yeah. And then we have Ralph Stanley. And the dressing room, if you want to call it that, was on the other end of the bar. So when Bill Monroe got off stage, he would walk to the... dressing room or Ralph Stanley would walk there and uh, walk right by you. <laughs> and if you were brave enough and you yelled in the dress, Hey Bill, that was pretty good. Uh, can I see your mandolin? Sure. You, if he liked you, you sit in there for 20 minutes and talk to Bill Monroe or <laughs> Ralph Stanley. Right. Or I'm trying, I can't think of anybody that didn't. Who, who else was around there? Were the Osborne brothers playing around there? Or? The Osborne brothers had lived in Dayton, Ohio, probably in the late 50s, early 60s. So I didn't have much contact with them. Yeah. Uh, but there was a uh, festival at Frontier Ranch every year, and all, all the guys would come. Now, in 1969, you could go to Bean Blossom. Uh, you could go to Frontier Ranch and see every one of the original bands, Jimmy Martin, it was pretty unreal. Yeah. At that time, were you playing, were you performing? Uh, Were you in a band in Ohio before you got down here to Atlanta? I, when I was, uh, I think about 17 years old, I was my senior in high school, a band that was doing a radio show needed a banjo player, and John recommended me. Now, the prior banjo player was a guy named Frank Godby that you see. He writes a lot in Bluegrass Unlimited. He's quite, uh, I don't know, famous or present in the in the Bluegrass world. So here I am. I know 20 or 30 Bluegrass instrumentals. I'd never really listened to Bluegrass. I knew no songs, and I didn't even have a clue how to play chords. <laughs> but I had played guitar so I, I could make the chords, but I had no clue. So I called up John and said, hey, I'm playing this radio show, and we're going to do the following seven or eight songs. So he 
spent about two weeks with me, like three or four hours every day, and he didn't charge me anything. <laughs> I'd go out to his house, and, and he'd work, we'd work on these breaks for three or four hours a day, and then I'd go home and practice for four or five more hours. And that's how I made the transition into being able to play on the radio. <laughs> that's interesting. Now, the radio was sponsored by Joe's Fish Market. <laughs> that sounds like you made that up, but no, it's, no, you it, didn't. Well, it, it wasn't Joe, but it was a fish market okay. guy. <laughs> and I think it cost like $25 a week. So uh, oh. Joe didn't want to spend $25, so we got two sponsors for twelve fifty each. And then eventually the sponsors didn't sponsor it, so then the band had to chip in. So I would have to pay $5 to be on the radio for each show. <laughs> pay to play. Pay to play, yes. <laughs> That's funny. Now, how did you end up uh, down in Atlanta? I first bumped into you uh, probably, I'm not positive when exactly. I know that I really got to know you well about 1984 because I had opened a little printing company. And and I knew you I knew you're around. I mean, I had bumped into you prior to that. I joined Cedar Hill I think in 84 and you were playing in a band called Greater Atlanta Bluegrass Band at that roughly at the same time. And I I knew who you were, but I hadn't I don't think I'd ever talked to you. I'm sitting there in my little print shop and had just opened the doors. And the almost the first person that walked in my door was you. And you had under your arm the, one of your banjo books and wanted a price, wanted to know how much I could print these books for. I'm holding up the banjo, my original copy. Of oh, I see that. Yeah. Banjo songs, volume one with the cassette tape in the back. And anyway, I quoted you some price and it was too high for your liking. And I didn't end up printing them, but we got to, at that point, we, I started talking to you more. And by 19, I think it was also in 84 when the Southeastern Bluegrass Association got cranked up. I think so, yeah. And you were on the newsletter staff, as was I. And I was printing the newsletter at that time, and we got to hang it around. There is a picture in the very first issue of the SEBA breakdown of you uh, doing paste-up or something on the on the early issue or something. I don't know. But we started hanging around doing the SEBA thing. And I was bumping into you. I was playing with Cedar Hill, and you were running around with Greater Atlanta. You were basically our competition. Uh, Cedar Hill or you guys were the two duking it out for most of the in-town gigs and stuff. So that's when I first ran into you. But I know you got to Atlanta before then. So tell me, tell me about how you came to Atlanta and what you were doing before I knew you, so in the late 70s. Okay, so when I got out of college in 1969, I pretty much quit playing the banjo and worked for a real estate company, and then I started selling encyclopedias, <laughs> which I didn't particularly care. It's somewhat stressful. Where were you selling encyclopedias? Where was uh, it? West Virginia. I remember you telling me. And that. I wasn't wasn't playing. You know, I wasn't playing at that time. So then, so how were sales up there? By the way, were you pretty successful? Were you like was, a door to door salesman? Well, we worked off leads. And See, like I can, somebody filled in a little coupon in a in the back of a magazine and sent it in. I'm interested in your encyclopedia. Well, it's, I'm interested in getting the free gift, with, oh, which right. was a medical. What, what, what was the free gift? A medical book, like medical guide. You know, if you right, you know, cut yourself. What do you do? You know, what 
ointment right. you use. And that's and of course, free with if you uh, go through the presentation. Well, we had to deliver it, but all we delivered was actually a certificate that they could send in. <laughs> and now, oh, one thing, God. if you're out in the middle of West Virginia on the top of a mountain and I come to sell encyclopedias, you can't say, oh, well, we'll just go to the local library. So the, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so the sales were actually really good if people could uh, afford it, which at the time I think you could pay $15 a month and... Uh, and get get these books. Yeah. So then I had a friend who I'd worked with because uh, when I got out of college, I worked for a real estate company that developed uh, apartments around uh, the eastern United States, Atlanta being one of them. And a guy came who did market research, and I worked for him. He then left the company, moved to Atlanta, and then called me and said, "Hey, would you like to do?" market research in Atlanta. And I said, hey, that sounds pretty cool. So I moved to Atlanta. We did it for about a year, and then the company quit uh, being successful. And I, during that time, I'd gone to a music store to buy a string for my banjo. Buy a string. One string. (laughs) And the guy got to talking to me. Well, when you sell encyclopedias, you're a pretty good salesman. So he recognized, hey, this guy could probably sell musical stuff. So... Well, what... Do you remember what music store that was? Fiducive. Fiducive Music. I don't remember that Long gone. So I ended up... He said, man... He called me up and said, hey, we have a nine-year-old kid that wants to learn to play the banjo. Can you teach him? And I thought, okay. So my cut was $3. Right, six bucks a half hour, that kind of thing. Something like that. So I got $3. So I would come get up every Saturday morning, go over and teach this kid for half an hour for $3. And that was my entry into the music. That is very much how I got started into teaching. I walked into a music store in Jonesboro, Georgia. Old guy named Sarge ran it. And Sarge said, hey, you play the banjo, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, I got a couple of people want to take banjo lessons. Are you interested in teaching? I was like, well, yeah, I guess. And he set me up, gave me a room, six bucks a half hour. I got three bucks. And I swear, the first person that came in the door could play better than me. And I was like, I didn't know what to do with this guy. It was a kid, but he was, he was like twice as fast as me. And I was so confused, but I got into it the same way, just being roped in by old Sarge. Yeah, well, actually, my teaching started in Columbus, Ohio, because my dad, who uh, was a very brilliant person but not very good at making money, he used to cut my hair. <laughs> hey, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, he used to, he used to cut my hair. Well, I was went down a block away to the main street in Columbus, Ohio, and there's a barber shop, and the guy liked bluegrass. So he said, hey, come in, and if you play the banjo for like 20 minutes, I'll give you a haircut. So <laughs> I'd go down there and play the banjo. Then there was a music store next door. Well, they had a, a banjo they're trying to sell in the store, and they this, this girl needed to, uh, she wanted to take banjo lessons, but she wanted to take banjo lessons before she bought the banjo. So uh, I started, I taught her. And it was about a block from my house so I could walk down there. So they're asking me. Now, if, if somebody had done what I did to this store in later life, I would have probably shot them. But I was so naive. So the 
the mother and the daughter said, oh, that banjo that they have, is is that any good? And I and it was an RB100. Oh, that's a piece of junk. You know what I'm saying? That's no good. Let me show you a real good banjo. So I went out to Steve Ryan. I don't The Steve Ryan Tone Ring? Oh, yeah, yeah. Steve Ryan Tone Ring in Columbus. Well, he... He was building banjos. He actually repaired copiers, but his tone ring was the first. Repaired copiers, like photocopiers. Yeah. Oh, okay. He was the first guy to do tone rings. In fact, Bill Sullivan used to sell his tone rings. and, and Well, uh, didn't he make tone rings for Stumac at times, too? I believe he did, and he made uh, some tone rings for Vega. So I went out to his house and got a banjo and brought it into the music store in the lesson and sold the banjo to the student. Well, about three or four weeks later, the manager of the store said, uh, did you uh, sell that girl a banjo? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you're supposed to sell my banjo. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but that's a piece of junk. <laughs> well, he looked at me. He was real polite. He said, you know, I don't really think that you can teach here anymore. <laughs> So that was the end of my first teaching job. But I was—I thought that I had an obligation to the <laughs> student to make sure that they got a really good deal, which they did. They got a wonderful banjo. That's funny. Now, that was up in Ohio. So let's come on down to Atlanta. I know when I first got started playing around Atlanta in the late 70s, underground Atlanta was cooking. And I was a little young to get into those places early on, but I did play there. In fact, I played there with Pony Express for the party. I think WQXI Radio had a big bash when they closed the original underground. They shut her down. I think it's probably in 78. I don't know for sure. Yeah. And I think there was only one club left standing at that time. And it was, uh, but I can say I played at the old underground. But if you go back to those places like Muhlenbrinks and Piano Reds and stuff, you were hanging around down there when you first uh, came to town. There was a club called PJ Kenny's, and I would go down there. I just moved to Atlanta, and incidentally, we mo- I moved to Atlanta July fourth, nineteen ninety six. On that very day, that's ninety six, nineteen ninety six, nineteen seventy six. I'm sorry, I, <laughs> okay, I'm, yeah. I'm getting old here. Yeah, no, okay. but <laughs> it was that very day that we pulled up with the truck and started unload. It was uh, July nineteen seventy six. Yeah, okay, nineteen seventy six. So um, I used to go down to underground, and there was a guy named Alan Joyner who was just yeah, I, I know Al. If anybody from Atlanta's ever seen this guy, he was out of his mind. And he was so entertaining because he would say just about anything. And there was a banjo player that played with him called Skid Row, who was beyond fast. I mean, he was the fastest banjo player that I've ever seen. Yeah. And the name of the band was Bear Creek. I remember that. Well, Bear Creek eventually got fired because they wouldn't, you know, they'd take like an hour and a half break. <laughs> they weren't business people they were extraordinary or extraordinarily talented so alan joiner called no no denny rush called me he was the lead guy and they they wanted to do a new band and they went through all the banjo players in atlanta of course i was the the latest guy to come and i was kind of like the last choice <laughs> bottom of the barrel so uh we went down there and played, and then uh, Alan Joyner came back, and, and we became Bear Creek again. And so Skid Row 
Ted Billadu, his yep. name, after I'd been playing down there about six weeks, he says, hey, can I have my job back? And I thought, that's kind of a weird request. You want your job back. What does that mean? So Skid had helped me a lot. So I said, you know what? Okay, I'll quit playing, and then you can be the banjo player again. <laughs> well, the one thing that I was doing that was helping the band a lot as I was keeping them in structure structure. So after 15 minutes of break, okay, let's get back on. Well, once again, they go back to the hour and a half breaks and within about three weeks, they ended up, ended up getting fired. And of course, and Bert Casey, my partner's band played down there then. What was the name of their band at that time? Home remedy. Blue moon. Blue moon. Was he in home remedy too? Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Skid Row, I remember him when I was just really coming into this in 1980. Uh, Pony Express got a gig playing at a joint in Marietta, Georgia called Gus Fletcher's. We were playing six nights a week. We played from six to nine, and Rosebud, which is Buck Peacock and those guys, they played from nine to midnight. And Skid Row was their banjo player at that time. And the last time I saw him, and it's been a long time ago, when it was when I was in Cedar Hill, we were playing out Six Flags for some sort of event. I'm talking this is 20, 20 years ago. And he was in the Wild West show, uh, like yeah. Gunslinger, doing this act where they pretend to shoot each other off the balcony of the... Uh, anyway, he was doing that, and I, I know he was into all that replica Western stuff or whatever he certainly had the look for it and i used to see him playing around town he played in bill turpin's band called real people and some of those country bands and stuff uh move move along to uh the days of greater atlanta tell us about greater atlanta bluegrass band okay so uh i was working at a place called the music mart and v- very quickly what happened was I was promoted from the acoustic manager to the sales manager. And so we didn't really have anyone that knew how to sell, particularly banjos. And we're starting to do a lot of banjo selling. So I had talked years prior with a guy named Jack Spence, who was the man who became the manager of Rhythm City. And one day he was very frustrated and he called me and said, Hey, do you have any job openings at the music mart? So when uh, uh, I was asked to see if I could find someone, I called Jack. I said, Jack, would you be interested? And he said, and I said, because you asked me, you know, if we had any openings. And he said, that was seven years ago that I made that comment. So I, so I, uh, uh, anyway, he, we negotiated, he ended up working there and he played the bass and just to kind of, make him feel welcome or just because we had a lot in common, I decided, Hey, we'll play up. I'll, I'll start playing the banjo more. And then Bob Nyes and Buck Peacock, Be- Peacock showed up and we formed this band, the greater Atlanta bluegrass yeah. band. Yeah. And then Jack quit after, Oh, and there's a, there's a funny story here. So Jack says, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I want to play anymore. And this was after like six or eight weeks. And he was playing bass. Yeah, he was playing bass. So he's thinking that, you know, after about a week or two, we'd be calling him, please come back. Please, Jack, would you please (laughs) play with us? We can't play. We're going to have to quit if you don't come back. 
Well, what happened, Bob Nyes, who plays mandolin, was looking at the back of an album and noticed Emery Gordy Jr. lived in Dallas, Georgia, or was from Dallas, Georgia. And yeah. I don't know why he did this, but he called information and got a hold of Emery's mother and talked to Emery. And, of course, Emery's like the bass god. I mean, he's like Nashville guy, you know, produced Bill Monroe and all this. But he was he was retiring, and he just needed something to do just for yep. fun. So Emery started playing with us. Well, about a week later, Jack's wondering what's going on. He notices that uh, Emery Gordy Jr., pretty much probably the most desirable bluegrass bass player in the world at that time. And he thought, wow, I guess they're not going to be calling me, begging <laughs> me to come back. Yeah, Emery is, is I mean, world class. He produced albums for, he was a producer for MCA, did Bill Monroe Records, uh, or at least I know of one. Uh he was on, he was in David Grisman's band or on Here that today. album Here Today. I mean, uh, I know, uh, didn't he tour with uh, Dan, Dan Fogelberg, Amy Lou Harris? Maybe John played, Denver. Yeah. He, this, he, and I got to know him because he was playing with you guys. And we'd play places like the Freight Room and stuff around at Atlanta. And I got to know him. I didn't really know all that about him. And he was when we were doing the SEBA breakdown, he was writing some articles on how to how to write a set list and how to record an album. He was contributing articles and stuff. Um, but I found out he was a ham radio operator, which I was too, and I used to bump into him at the at the Atlanta Ham Fest and stuff like that. And he was telling me one time that um because he knew I knew Morse code and he knew Morse code, he he said when we were doing these sessions in Nashville there were a couple of guys that all knew Morse code and they would talk to each other by playing Morse code on their instrument back and forth, like making comments about who, who they were playing with and stuff like that. But, um, last time I saw Emory, he was up at, uh, raccoon Creek cooking hamburgers at the raccoon Creek bluegrass festival. Cause I think he's neighbors with, uh, he's actually, uh, Ricky, uh, Rakestraw. Rakestraw's cousin. Oh, is so he's related. Too. Yeah. Now, one day, the Greater Atlanta Bluegrass got a job, and I was late for it. And it was in a shelter, a small picnic type shelter at the local mental institution. But, but <laughs> I don't know why. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I, I was scared they might just keep me over there. But uh, so Emery brought Patty Loveless. Now I didn't know who Patty Loveless was at the time. And so he got her to sing Mule Skinner Blues in a picnic shelter. So it's it's about four people in there, and she's just doing Mule Skinner Blues, and it was just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, she has, um, uh, just this past summer, I went up to Raccoon Creek to the festival, and I, I posted a little link or a little something on my Twitter, you know, hey, I'm going to Raccoon Creek, and Buddy Ashmore and I wrote up there. And it, uh, I think she popped in. She, you know, they, they got up and played toward the end of the show. We were already long gone, though, by then. Uh, let's move ahead. Okay. Uh, once again, um, I made a, a crack one time on my own website that I was talking about uh, the Banjo Primer book. And I said that that Banjo book has been rolled up and used to swat and chase many a man out of the house. 
And uh, you are responsible for one of the best-selling banjo instruction books of all time, the Banjo Primer book. Uh, I'm not saying it's any good. I'm just saying you've sold a lot of them. Tell me about how that whole thing got started. Well, one characteristic that I have (laughs) is if somebody's talking about something, I will always make suggestions about how they could better improve. Yes, I do the same thing. And what's interesting about it is it, most of the time it's something I know nothing about. So the, <laughs> the advice is totally worthless. It's kind of like, you know, in that movie, I can see dead people or something. You know, I just think I have this this thing. So I was at a trade show. As a matter of fact, Mel Bay was there. And I sat at a table with Mel Bay. And, and Mel Bay at that time was older, and all he did was tell jokes. But that, that's just an aside. So I was talking to one of the distributors, and I said, you know what? Somebody should write a banjo book. And I described how it would go because I think it'd sell real well. And he he looked at me and says, why don't you write it? And I went, whoa. You know, I'm actually going to have to do something, you know. So that was Saturday. On Sunday, I sat down for eight hours, and I wrote the Banjo Primer book. And then I started to lay it out. Now, since you're in printing, you're aware there was no desktop publishing. Right. right. So I had to take the text after I typed it out to a printer. They would then print it out on sheets, and then I had to take an X-Acto knife and cut it and paste it. And that took me... Hours and hours. I almost had a nervous breakdown. So I finally got this book together. And uh, it was a, you know, step-by-step book. And the thing that was uh, unique about it that I got from a book called the Christopher Parkening Classical Guitar Book was that in the Classical Guitar Book, he had pictures of how to hold his hands, detailed pictures, lots of pictures and drawings. Yeah. And I thought, why don't I just do that with the banjo, a banjo book, the banjo primer, and that, and that's what we did. Yeah. And that book has sold that that book has sold about two hundred thousand copies, and it's in its fifth revision. So now, and honestly, it's. I think the book is is almost perfect as far as what what it's supposed to do. But it's taken uh, almost 40 years to accomplish that. I don't recall if that was the book you had under your arm when you came to visit me looking for prices. But back in those days, it was spiral bound or or GBC bound with a cassette. It probably was one of the Banjo Songs books, which there were three of those. Yeah, probably was. Yeah. Um, Okay. So you had this Banjo Primer. When did it start? When did it turn into video? Because I got involved with you. I wrote uh, my first mandolin book called Mas- Mandolin Masterclass in 2005 and was, was peddling that on the Internet. And we got to talking about that because you had a lot of music stores that you could possibly distribute it to. And, and I eventually got involved with you filming mandolin videos and later went to work for you doing editing and stuff. But you already had produced video cassettes of how to play the guitar, how to play the banjo and stuff. Um, tell me about how that got started because that was very early. That was, there was no YouTube back when you guys were doing that. I had gone to visit Herb Trotman in the late seventies. He's in 
Birmingham, Alabama, and he had gotten a video camera, a VHS camera, and he thought it would be cool to use it to help teach. So I had that idea in my mind, and I, and when I was working, I would li- listen to all these motivational tapes and right. stuff. Right. So we were selling books that had a cassette tape with them. So I changed the name of the company to Cassette and Video. We didn't have videos for for about 10 years after we started really? calling yeah. ourselves Cassette and Video, but it was a dream. All right. So Bert Casey and I, on my day off, w- would go to my house and we would take video equipment and we started shooting a banjo primer video to go along with the book. Yeah. And we would, uh, invariably we'd start at nine in the morning and like at nine fifteen, we'd find out we were missing a certain connector. Right. So most of the time what we're doing is running around finding connectors. Of course, all our equipment came from pawn shops. So you can imagine. <laughs> and there's a thing on the old recorders where if you put it on pause, that you have a certain amount of time, it may be 30 seconds or a minute, where if you then turn it back on, you get a really clean uh, transition. It looks very professional. However, if you miss that time, then you get all this, oh, it looks squiggly. like fire or squiggly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. So we were trying to, you know, get, get <laughs> it done. And during the process of all this, we, uh, we figured out, how to show everything we wanted to show. So if we wanted to show, you know, the thumbnail <laughs> you know, or how to put the pick on, we noticed in some cases you'd need the camera to be above you looking down. Right. So we would go get a step ladder and, you know. <laughs> right. And then... Um, I remember seeing in the earliest videos, uh, you had the bouncing ball that followed the notes and it was, I could see that it was a ballpoint pen was Bert, uh, I think Bert was actually holding the pen, wasn't he, and moving it along as you played or something. Yeah, so that's that's what we did. So we had, we called it Hillbilly Split Screen because, <laughs> and, and you can still, I, I think we've, we've upgraded everything, but even four or five years ago, you could look at the acoustic guitar pr- primer book and it had a, a pen on it. Right, right. So long story short, I was, we had these music stores. So I'm in the store and, and there's a guy, uh, who's a videographer and then he's just talking about it. And I kind of overheard him. I said, Oh, do you, do you shoot videos? Oh yeah, I do. Now this guy's name is Mill Cannon. He later started doing a lot of Coke commercials. So he was very talented, but we got him, you know, when he was just starting. So I pulled out the banjo primer book and I said, could you shoot a video of this? No problem, you know. That's, right, you, right. you always got to be careful when somebody says no. Get problem. your get your wallet out, particularly if somebody's your roof's leaking because there probably will be a problem when they get done fixing it. <laughs> so he was working with a video studio, and so I cut a deal with him where he would shoot the banjo video in exchange, I think, for two guitars, and so we would. So he could get a good rate. We'd show up at two in the morning and work like till six. <laughs> and I, I don't, I'm not good at night. So I'd have to wake up at two in the morning and go down there. So we eventually got it done. And in the middle of it, his video camera was stolen. So he had to go borrow. One. It was just a mess. <laughs> so all of a sudden we had a video. 
Then we cut a deal with the uh, studio for them to cut the acoustic guitar primer video in exchange for a drum set and a guitar. Okay? <laughs> we have sold close to a million of those, yeah, which is unbelievable. And some of the original footage is still being used. Yeah, I, re- I remember when I was doing editing and stuff for you guys, looking at some of that stuff, it was still, some of the products still had some of that original stuff in it. Um, it's pretty amazing, really, though, that how far things have come today. Uh, really, you know, almost anyone with their iPhone can shoot a pretty high quality video and it's it's not technically difficult to edit and add text and do all these things that were extremely difficult that no one knew how to do back then and uh i think now as you i'm sure you have felt the market is pretty uh flooded with uh, you know back in the day it, for you to pour all the time into doing a, uh, let's say how to play the guitar video, you know, it's sort of assumed that you probably knew how to play the guitar today. You don't actually have to know how to do anything. And, and it's real easy to plaster stuff all over the internet. Uh, I, I know that when I first got, I did my first mandolin video just sort of as a test in the basement. And this was in the spring of 2007 and YouTube had just come out in 2006 and I think uh, I have yet to be disproved on this, that I put the first mandolin video lesson ever up on YouTube. Uh, there was a, a, there was an outfit did some about a month after mine went up and they are crude and they're funny, but you saw that video. Yeah. And, yeah. and that led to basically being invited to, you know, create some mandolin video material for you guys. And later I did some banjo stuff too. But it's been a fun ride. I, I wonder where it's going next. Like the holographic, have Jeff Howald in your in your living room in a holographic representation to teach you how to play the two three slide or something. Well, so um, even after you're long gone, your yeah. hologram will still remain. Yeah, that's kind of scary. Hey, so, uh, oh, go ahead. Go I ahead. was going to tell you we used to have our pictures on the books yeah. on the front cover, but we took them off because what happens is you. You do a clinic and people are looking at a 40-year-old picture and, and in walks this old man. And so we decided we weren't going to do that anymore. Yeah, I, I was around in those days when you were redoing the covers and taking the pictures off. Yeah. Um, now, here, I made the mistake of putting my pictures on, on yeah. some. So just, just very quickly, what happened very, very early on, we wanted to teach songs which we could do to a certain uh, degree because bluegrass does a lot of uh, public domain songs, which you're allowed to use. Yeah. But yeah. when we started expanding to other instruments, we couldn't get permission to use the song. So it forced us to spend more time trying to teach a sequence of technique. In other words, we became uh, very proficient in teaching beginners yeah, And you just mentioned that if somebody knows two songs, that that's a very significant step forward in becoming a musician. So that's kind of what, by total accident, that's how, what we focused on. Yeah, and you told me a long time ago that, like, you had book one and book two of, let's say, guitar. 
that book one would outsell book two, something like 20 to one or something like that. And the market really is in beginners. And, and I tell my students, I used to make this joke with people when they would come take lessons. I would say, you know, my goal is for you to quit because if you're hanging around here three years from now, still taking lessons, it means you're not learning, you know, beginners need instruction. Advanced people do not. They're out learning it on their own. They figured it out. You know, if, in other words, if you create an advanced banjo course, you're probably not going to sell very many because the advanced players don't need it. But the beginners, they need that helping hand. And you've certainly provided that helping hand. I don't think we're going to have time today to get into the whole vintage instrument market okay. uh, thing. Uh, but maybe we'll do that in a, in a future podcast because I just want to mention that you have wheeled and dealed in high-quality bluegrass instruments for a long time. Um, you know, I... I know of the five or six Lloyd Lore mandolins that I've ever played, two or three of them were in your possession at that time. And I, I've had the access to handle and look at and drool over some of these great instruments, and it would take literally an hour to talk about all that stuff. So let's yeah. just sideline that for now. I just want to note that you have uh, been involved in that, and we may come back to that at some point. Um, before we wrap it up here, tell me what you're doing these days. Uh, you know, what are you up to right now? Well, um, okay, about 10 years ago, I decided, and it's kind of funny, you really have to laugh at yourself here, but I decided that I was going to give a gift to the world of all my knowledge. <laughs> and, <laughs> and since we had since uh, we had a video studio about five feet from my office it's a small video studio but it's very efficient i could get up and for virtually almost no money produce content so i started uh, writing some content and discovered very quickly that i had tremendous gaps in my knowledge i really there was really no gift going to be given because i didn't know I, i just didn't know what i was doing so I started teaching a few private lessons. I did some clinics with Curtis Jones. I started teaching at John C. Campbell Folk School, which is week-long classes. This was in about the year 2001. And also started teaching up in Dahlonega at a, with a program called Pick and Bow, where we, uh, yeah. one hour a week you'd show kids how to play. And the purpose of all this was to gain knowledge about what people wanted and also to be able to actually come up with materials. So in the last 10 years, I've spent close to 4,000 hours creating material. And the only thing that was unique about it is we would put, we would shoot individual lessons, which would be on a specific topic and then bundle them in groups of six. Right. I mean, I, I would just, for full disclosure at that, time during a lot of that i was there working in behind the camera and doing editing on on a lot of those videos that you produced during i guess this is probably in 2008 9 7 8 9 10 along in there and it was uh it's amazing the amount of material that got put on video during that time period it was really astonishing well, uh, my partner, Bert Casey, is a mechanical engineer, so he's very precise 
and he would say, okay, we need to shoot this video and have it done in like 40 minutes. Well, I couldn't deal with that. So I, that's one of the reasons I tried so hard to recruit you to come in and do it because you, if, if we needed two hours, you'd sit there and do it. And if there was a lot of extra editing, so it ended up making the product a, a lot better. And well, it didn't hurt too that I I played the banjo, so you were shooting vi- uh, banjo material, and if I, when I was editing it, I could spot you know maybe an error that something that took place, or you said C when you were holding a D, you know I could spot those things where you know some long haired rock and roll kid you know hired to do editing wouldn't necessarily know that stuff. Yeah, th- that was extraordinarily helpful because if I'm it, as I say if I played something which wasn't accurate to the tablature, you you could hear it right there, and we didn't have to go back two weeks later and recut part of the yeah. the video. Yeah. So the other thing that I'm also doing um, is, and this is kind of a retirement thing, just get a little extra almost spending money, but um, I'm starting to sell a lot of banjos on the Internet, and we have something uh, called Banjo Compass on Facebook and Hoald Banjo Warehouse, and my son helps, and he keeps changing the name every other day, so I don't even know <laughs> what to look for. But um, and the idea there was to uh, basically just make the banjo buying experience safe. So if you bought something, you whatever you ordered, that's what you actually got packed right. properly. Right. And then the the other thing uh, is I've been doing clinics at John C. Campbell. I've done about 40 clinics and also private clinics. So I'm up to about 50. So we have something called uh, jeffhowald.com. And it just, you know, I have, uh, I've had a few people fly in from various parts of the country and they'll spend a day with me, sometimes two days. So that's kind of what I'm going to do. Well, for everybody listening, I'll put links on the show notes page to Jeff's various sites and books and all this kind of stuff so that you can find them because uh somebody listening might not know how to even spell your first name it is of course g-e-o-f-f that you know that's that's a that is a problem now the other problem is if i ever commit a crime there's only one jeff howald in the world so <laughs> i can't goodness. say it was the other jeff howald so. <laughs> i'll put uh links on the show notes page to your various websites and stuff so people can find you. Everybody go out and uh, take a look at those and check out what Jeff has to offer. He is certainly a guy who has been around a long time and in bluegrass longevity means a lot. Jeff, thanks for coming and thanks for doing this interview. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Well, I hope you had fun listening to me and Jeff uh, talk about some of the old days and about the backstory you know, of the the music store business and lesson business and the uh, some of the historical background of this whole thing that we're also used to today of, you know, high quality video instruction and all that stuff that we're, you know, somebody getting into it today may have assumed it was always like that. And I hope that you get from this that it wasn't always quite so easy. Anyway, we're going to close out the show. Here is the master himself, Jeff Owald playing banjo on a tune that he wrote called Pure Pleasure. And by the way, on the show notes page, just go to grasstalkradio.com. 
go down to this episode, you know, the routine, click on that. And I'll have links over to all the Jeff Howald uh, paraphernalia. And for, for those of you who are shopping for banjos and stuff, since that's sort of what he's into today, I'll have links to his site on the show notes page. So here we go. Take it away, Jeff. Jeff. <laughs> 